two couples stood in the parking lot of a restaurant in Portland, Maine. Now that lunch was over, it was time for business. One of the women, Ellen Gorenti, stood silently beside her husband, Bobby. Though he was a mobster, he didn't look much like one by 2003. Cancer had thinned his body and he was visibly ill. The end was near. Bobby approached their car and popped the trunk open. Ellen, on the other hand, knew exactly what to do. Nothing. As a mob wife, Ellen had made a career out of pretending not to see things. So she stood there and watched the scene unfolding in front of her. Bobby pulled out at least two rolling tubes used to store art. Then he handed them to the other man, Robert Gentile. But Gentile balked. He had a suspicion about what they were, and he immediately knew what Bobby was asking. His friend's life was coming to an end, which meant Bobby needed Gentile to take care of whatever was in those canisters to protect them. And to use them for the family business if needed. So Gentile loaded them into his car, and the couple said their goodbyes. With one simple handoff, Gentile was supposedly leaving the parking lot with millions of dollars in stolen art. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Gardner Museum heist what many consider to be the most expensive art theft in history, and one that's still unsolved. In March of 1990, two men broke into Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and walked out with 13 pieces of art. Today, the missing art is worth about half a billion dollars. In the last episode, we covered the events leading up to the heist. We addressed the museum's lax security and confusing nature of the theft. While the thieves apparently knew the building, they also seemed woefully ignorant about the artwork itself. And since the heist, there's been only one alleged sighting of the artwork, which took place seven years after it was stolen. So this time, we'll investigate three conspiracy theories surrounding the heist. We'll explore whether it could have been an inside job, facilitated by the lackadaisical security guard. Then we'll discuss whether the Boston Mafia stole the art to use as a bargaining chip. And finally, we'll consider whether the artwork was simply destroyed and lost forever. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. 
I know for me in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. On the night of March 17th, 1990, two thieves robbed Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Posing as police officers, they convinced a security guard to let them inside. Soon enough, they had that same security guard handcuffed and bound. Then they turned the museum into their personal playground. The thieves took 13 works of art by some of the world's most famous painters. This included three by the Dutch master Rembrandt. His seascape, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, one called A Lady and Gentleman in Black, and a self-portrait roughly the size of a postage stamp. Today, the value of this loot sits at a whopping $500 million. And even after 30 years, the mystery of who stole the artworks remains unsolved. But there is one major clue that helps solve most art thefts. 80% of major art heists have the aid of someone inside the museum. Which brings us to our first conspiracy theory. One of the security guards, Richard Abbott, was in on the robbery. 23-year-old Abbott wasn't exactly a model employee. His real passion was his rock band, which was modeled after the likes of Fish and the Grateful Dead. And like many deadheads, he enjoyed intoxicating substances. It wasn't unusual for him to show up to work under the influence of cannabis or alcohol. His reckless behavior didn't end there. One New Year's Eve, Abbott held a party for his friends inside the Gardner Museum. This is all to say, it seems like Abbott didn't take his security duties very seriously. He and his roommate who also worked at the gardener, often joked about how easy it would be for someone to rob the place. For Abbott, the Isabella Gardner Museum was a funhouse. His job was an easy way to make cash on the side. 
All he really had to do was show up, sit around twiddling his thumbs, and look at fancy art. And for whatever reason, leading up to the heist, Abbott had put in his two weeks' notice. It seems pretty likely, then, that as Abbott did his rounds on the night of March 17th, he wasn't thinking much about doing the most thorough watch possible. Instead, his mind was on the Grateful Dead concert he was attending the next day. He couldn't wait for his shift to end. Perhaps as a result of that, Abbott grew a little careless, which is problematic because his actions that night have raised real suspicions about his involvement. At around 1 a.m. on the night of the heist, Abbott opened one of the museum's side doors and peered outside. This was totally against security protocol. Unless extreme circumstances left them no other choice, guards weren't supposed to open the doors after hours for any reason. However, when questioned about it later, Abbott claimed that he checked the doors every night because he wanted to make sure they were locked. But that explanation doesn't make sense. The doors locked automatically, and the only way to unlock them was from the inside, either electronically from the security desk or manually, which is exactly what Abbott did. Plus, if anyone opened a door after hours, a computer registered the event and printed out a report, which the security supervisor checked every day. So if Abbott had been opening the doors every night, someone likely would have noticed. Other people have also pointed out that Abbott's poor decision-making was awfully convenient. Twenty minutes after he opened the door, the thieves showed up. While it's possible that Abbott was just checking the door's locks, this seems very suspicious. Many think it was a signal to the thieves who were parked in a car across the street. It's also worth pointing out that once the two thieves disguised as police officers appeared at the side door of the building, Abbott ignored everything he'd been trained to do. Security guards were never supposed to let anyone into the museum at night. Even if police showed up, they were told to call police headquarters to verify their identities before letting them enter. Abbott did none of this. Had he performed this crucial step, he probably would have prevented the theft. But for whatever reason, he ignored his training and buzzed the officers in. Plus, Abbott made one more crucial misstep. When the fake officers told him to step away from the security desk, he didn't hesitate. He walked away from the only button that triggered the museum's alarm system. After the robbery, Abbott's behavior was equally strange. For one, when investigators interviewed him, his explanations for all of these mistakes didn't quite add up. And a few days after the theft, Abbott agreed to a lie detector test. When asked whether he'd used drugs in the past 48 hours, Abbott answered no. The polygraph registered him as lying. According to Abbott, he only failed that one question. But investigators have since insinuated that he lied about more than just his drug use. The results of the test aren't public, though, so there's no way to confirm. If Abbott did help the thieves in some way, he was never rewarded for it. 
Before they left the basement, the pair told Abbott that if he kept his mouth shut, there would be a payout in one year's time. Understandably, for decades following the theft, the FBI monitored Abbott's bank accounts for a sudden influx of money, but it never came. Although that payout could have been delivered in cash. After all, these were seasoned criminals. They probably knew that the FBI was looking at his bank accounts. And Abbott has remained a person of interest in the case. Which could be for good reason. For example, during the heist, the museum's motion detectors didn't pick up some of the thieves' movements, including in the blue room, where they stole the Manet painting. This detail puzzled investigators until 2010, when Abbott, in a grand jury testimony, admitted that he knew special ways of walking around them. Perhaps Abbott told the thieves how to get past the censors. And in 2015, there was another major development. The FBI released video footage of the night before the heist. It showed Abbott letting an unknown man inside the building. This mystery visitor only stayed for a few minutes before exiting again. However suspicious it looks now, we can't equate Abbott's knowledge of the museum's security systems to committing the heist. Maybe Abbott did make a habit of opening the museum doors at night. After all, he'd let friends into the museum before. That doesn't mean he was planning to commit a robbery. I think the most perplexing part of all this is that Abbott claims he has no memory of certain events, like letting the unauthorized individual into the museum the night before the robbery. We can't know whether that's true or not, and there has never been enough evidence to charge Abbott with anything. Which leads us back to considering the timing of events, which is pretty odd. A lot of things had to line up perfectly for the heist to happen. I don't think that's a coincidence. First, Abbott put his notice in before the heist. Then he let some mysterious stranger into the museum the night before the event, and then to top it all off, right before the thieves show up, he opens the door like he's waiting for them. The problem is, we don't exactly have a good motive for him. Abbott was reckless with the rules, but that doesn't mean that he was planning the greatest art heist in history. Knowing his background, he seems unlikely to be the mastermind behind such a huge robbery. I don't understand why he would lie about passing the FBI's polygraph test then. That only makes me doubt his explanation for opening the museum doors every night. The bottom line is, he's an unreliable witness. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the absolute truth, I give this theory a 7. I think Abbott probably had some involvement with the Gardner heist. I'm not so sure. I'll stand by that he's innocent until proven guilty. For me, this theory is a 4. Abbott might not have been very good at his job, but nothing has ever come out directly connecting him to the thieves, whoever they are. That's the question that's puzzled investigators for decades. Who were the thieves? Coming up, the possibility that Boston's mob scene was behind the heist. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, 
where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. While there is a lot of compelling evidence that makes theorists think that Richard Abbott was involved with the heist, there's not sufficient evidence for authorities to charge the former security guard with the crime. Because even if the Abbott theory is true, there are still two people who haven't been accounted for, the thieves. Which brings us to our second conspiracy theory. The mob stole the paintings to negotiate leaner prison sentences. To understand this theory, we need to take a deep dive into Boston's mafia. The city had become a mob town prior to the Prohibition era. And by the 1980s, things were heating up because all of New England was more or less run by a network of crime families. In 1985, there was a vacuum of power in Boston's underworld, and some gangsters saw it as an opportunity to seize power. A renegade group of mafiosi, helmed by Vincent the Animal Ferrara, challenged the reigning Patriarca family. Boston's mob essentially split into two sides, erupting in a bloody fight for control that lasted almost a decade. Over a dozen people were murdered in mob hits. And a lot of people went to jail. It was a time when stolen art would have really come in handy. See, stolen art was a way of bargaining with authorities. If one of their head honchos got arrested, they could offer to return a painting or two in exchange for less time. Perhaps it wasn't just happenstance that the Gardner heist happened right in the middle of all this gangland fighting. A few months before the Gardner theft, Ferrara was arrested for racketeering. Around the same time, the authorities were looking to stick him with a murder charge as well. A conviction could have brought him life in prison, but with a plea deal eventually reached, the judge only sentenced him to 22 years. This might seem like a small amount of time, given the severity of his crimes, but mobsters like Ferrara don't just sulk behind bars for 20-plus years. No, they have friends in high places. Enter Bobby Donati, 
Ferrara's driver. Like Ferrara, Bobby Donati lived and breathed the mob, but he also loved antiquing and fine art. So when Donati met Miles Connor, a notorious art thief, he saw an opportunity to combine his two passions. In 1974, the pair stole five paintings from a private estate in Maine. Then, according to a 1998 Vanity Fair article, Connor claimed that Donati helped him steal a Rembrandt painting from the Boston Museum of Fine Art in April 1975. Allegedly, this was around the same time that the two men started staking out the Gardner Museum. Of course, the museum's lax security was somewhat of an open secret in the Boston organized crime circles at the time. Unwilling to just take anyone's word for it, Connor and Donati tested the system for themselves. One day in the 1970s, Connor says that Donati and Donati's brother unlocked one of the museum's first floor windows. Now at any other art establishment, this should have set off a series of alarms, but at the Gardner, no one seemed to notice. Afterwards, Connor and the Donati brothers periodically checked on that window just to see if anyone had paid it mind. When it remained unlocked, it was obvious to the men that the Gardner's security system was flawed and easy to circumvent. We also know that Donati had taken an interest in some of the items at the Gardner. Allegedly, he had a particular interest in the tip of the Napoleonic flagstaff housed at the museum. However, considering the timeline is important here, even if they were staking out the Gardner in the 1970s, and maybe even throughout the 80s, the heist was in 1990. By that time, Donati had already served time for some of his crimes. Maybe he finally learned his lesson. But just three months before the Gardner heist, Donati visited Ferrara in prison. And in that meeting, he told Ferrara that he would do whatever it took to get him out of there. With the help of his fellow gangster, David Houghton, they concocted a plan. They would steal some of the most valuable paintings in the world, and then Donati would use those to get his beloved Ferrara out of prison. They were convinced the plan would work because they'd seen the trick work before. Back in 1975, after Connor stole the Rembrandt from the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, Connor negotiated the return of the painting to save himself from an extended time behind bars. So Donati and Houghton were confident they could do it too. They likely scoped out the gardener's security, noting the vulnerable guard desk. And according to sources close to Donati at the time, he had accidentally revealed to some friends at a social club that he'd purchased policemen's uniforms. Then, on March 18th, two unidentified men entered the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum wearing police uniforms. They stole 13 priceless pieces from the museum, including the tip of the Napoleonic flagstaff, the same one Donati had his eyes on all those years ago. After the heist, Donati and Houghton seemed to be laying low, but eventually Donati paid his friend Ferrara another visit in prison. By this point, Ferrara had already heard about the heist and was sure that his associate had a role in it. Once Donati arrived at the corrections facility, Ferrara confronted him to ask if it was true, 
though he was careful to keep his wording vague. Donati nodded. He said he'd buried the painting somewhere and was going to find a way to begin negotiations. However, tragedy struck before that could happen. In September 1991, Donati was found dead in the trunk of a car. It was nearly a year and a half after the Gardner theft. The mob wars had claimed another victim. His supposed partner in crime, Houghton, died soon after. Whatever plans they had to free Ferrara using the Gardner paintings died with them. There's a problem with this version of the story, though. David Houghton doesn't match the description of either of the thieves. At over 300 pounds, that would likely have been an identifiable detail. Plus, the FBI doesn't seem to think that Donati had much to do with the robbery. On March 18, 2013, exactly 23 years after the Gardner heist, the FBI held a press conference to announce that they knew the identities of the thieves. Though the Bureau didn't name names, they dropped enough hints for reporters to eventually piece together some of the individuals they might have been referring to. These included mobsters David Turner and George Reisfelder. While Reisfelder passed away about a year and a half after the Gardner heist, there's reason to believe he may have been involved. Granted, his siblings had some interesting things to say about his home decor. Apparently, Reisfelder's bedroom was outfitted with a painting that looked a lot like Monet's Shea Tortoni. And then there was Turner, a mobster with ties to the Rossetti gang, which had scouted the gardener for a possible heist in the 80s. Turner was not new to organized crime. He committed armed robberies and home invasions. And it's believed that on at least one occasion, he'd had an associate murdered because they were going to testify against him in court. Turner apparently wasn't very coy about his alleged involvement in the heist. Somehow, an unfounded rumor spread that he was writing a book about what he knew. In 1999, Turner was arrested in an attempted armored car robbery. He was looking at a 38-year sentence, so if he knew anything about the paintings, talking was to his benefit. Yet, when questioned by investigators, he insisted that he had nothing to do with the heist. His alibi was pretty unshakable. Turner wasn't in Boston during the heist. In March 1990, just days before the robbery, Turner drove down to Miami Beach, Florida, to pick up a shipment of cocaine. Bank records show that he used his credit card there. Then, on March 20th, a few days after the heist, he used it again in Fort Lauderdale. It's possible that the Florida trip was a fabricated alibi and someone else used Turner's card. Yet Turner had multiple opportunities to reveal what he knew about the paintings in order to free himself or others, and he couldn't. If we're considering whether the thieves were in the mob and trying to negotiate down prison sentences, it seems like there's a lot of evidence pointing to yes. Some of it is circumstantial but it really feels like the writing is on the wall here. That's true, but I have a hard time believing that they didn't entrust the secret to other people in their criminal network. 
these paintings were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. You don't just steal them and let them die in hiding. I agree. It seems like someone would have turned in the paintings by now if they knew anything. There's too much to gain and nothing to lose. And yet, no one has come forward with anything. That's a pretty good argument for the mob not being involved. My only caveat is that maybe that's because most of these people are already dead. Authorities lost the opportunity to get answers from them, so their secrets were taken to the grave. However, until something more concrete comes up, I'm giving this theory a four. I'm of the opposite mind. I think because the key players who wanted to leverage the art are dead, it's remained in hiding. And now, no one can find it. While it's unclear who exactly in the mob may be responsible, I think there's definitely a couple worthy suspects. This theory is a seven for me. Well, somebody had to have the paintings at some point. Given how much danger there was with transporting them, maybe something did happen to them. Coming up, the FBI lays eyes on a fateful hidden compartment. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. On March 18, 2013, exactly 23 years after the Gardner heist, the FBI held a press conference. Surprisingly, they had identified the thieves, but the Bureau still had no idea where any of the stolen pieces of art were. Alarmingly, it believed the paintings might have somehow made their way into someone's attic or garage, and the owner might have no idea what they were worth. So the FBI made a plea. If anyone could come forward with information about the heist, they could claim the museum's $10 million reward and they'd be safe from federal prosecution. No one has come forward. And the reason for that might just be because the paintings no longer exist. This brings us to our final conspiracy theory. The paintings stolen from the gardener were destroyed. In 1997, a mobster named Carmelo Morlino made it his mission to find the gardener works. He put out the word among the mafia, hoping that someone knew something. Morlino soon learned that some of the artwork had made its way into the hands of a guy named Bobby Garenti. As we've since learned, Garenti was connected to a lot of the major players in the Gardner case. 
After learning about Garenti, Merlino told one of his buddies about the lead. Unfortunately for him, that friend was actually an undercover FBI informant. The authorities jumped at the new information. In March 1998, they arrested Garenti on cocaine trafficking charges, possibly hoping that this would lead to a confession about the Gardner heist. Investigators told Garenti that if he had intel on the paintings, he could save himself a whole lot of jail time. Now was Garenti's chance to play his hand, if he had one. He refused to cooperate. Instead, he received a five-year prison sentence. To the feds, it seemed like the rumors about Garenti were a false lead. But maybe the old mobster was just playing hardball with authorities because there's a lot of compelling evidence that at one point, Garenti did have some of the paintings. In 2001, Garenti was diagnosed with cancer. Knowing his time was limited, he reached out to an old friend named Robert Gentile. Gentile used to work for Garenti. He was a cook, security guard, driver, and an occasional poker dealer. Surely this pointed to his strong work ethic, but above all else, Garenti knew he was loyal. Around 2003, Garenti, Gentile, and their wives drove to Portland, Maine to have lunch. Afterwards, in the restaurant parking lot, Garenti reportedly told Gentile he had something for him. He went to the trunk of his car and pulled out several large cylindrical canisters, the kind used to store rolled-up artwork, and gave the paintings to Gentile. And that was it. Whatever was in those canisters was never brought up again. However, Garenti's wife, Ellen, who witnessed this handoff, knew that her husband kept stolen artwork from time to time. In the past, he'd even shown her paintings and bragged about how much they were worth. In 2004, Garenti passed away due to cancer, leaving Ellen a widow. And a few years later, Ellen found herself in financial straits. And one day, while driving down the highway, she saw a billboard inquiring about the stolen gardener paintings and advertising the $5 million reward. Suddenly, the exchange in the restaurant parking lot came rushing back. Of course, her husband gave Gentile the gardener paintings. As a mob wife, Ellen wasn't ready to talk to the feds just yet. She felt obligated to keep her late husband's business dealings a secret. Gentile had always been a good friend to them, and her husband gave him those paintings because he knew Gentile was loyal. Ellen wasn't in a place to muddy the waters. By 2010, though, she desperately needed the money. So she opened up to the FBI and gave them Robert Gentile's name. We also know that Ellen wasn't the only one who suspected Gentile. One of Garenti's best friends told him point blank that he knew about the paintings. When confronted, Gentile was defiant. He insisted that he knew nothing about the artwork. However, the feds were now watching him carefully, thanks to Ellen's tip. They just had to wait for him to make a mistake. And in 2012, they got their chance. In April of that year, the FBI caught Gentile selling OxyContin, 
Percocet and other pain relievers that he'd been prescribed. As an aging man in his 70s, he was now a sitting duck. When faced with the possibility of spending his last years in prison, they believed Gentile would break down and confess. Which made his response all the more surprising. Gentile refused to spill to the FBI. The only thing he'd submit to was a polygraph test. Interrogators asked Gentile various questions. Whether he knew about the robbery in advance, whether he'd seen any of the paintings, and whether he'd ever been in possession of the artwork. Gentile answered no to all the questions, and according to the polygraph, he was lying every single time. As the polygraph lurched, Gentile panicked, watching his plan backfire. He knew he'd have to fess up to something. Under pressure, Gentile submitted to a second polygraph test and admitted that he had seen at least one of the paintings, the stamp-sized self-portrait of Rembrandt. This time, the polygraph indicated he was telling the truth. But the FBI wasn't satisfied. They knew he had more, and if he didn't give them something, he'd almost certainly die in prison. As his lawyer implored him to cooperate, Gentile put his head in his hands. He seemed torn. While he wanted to spend his last years with his family, it's possible that he still felt a deep sense of loyalty to his other family, the mob. Appearing to have made up his mind, Gentile raised his head and told the agents curtly that he didn't know anything about the Gardner paintings. He wasn't going to talk. Shortly after Gentile took the polygraph test in 2012, the FBI raided his house. In the basement, they made an interesting discovery, a newspaper clipping about the Gardner theft. Attached was a piece of paper that listed out what each of the stolen works of art would fetch on the black market. It was pretty damning evidence. And then the agents made an even bigger discovery. Gentile's son, Robert Jr., told the feds that his father may have hidden the paintings in their backyard shed because the structure had a false floor. Agents immediately pulled up the flooring and found what Robert Jr. was talking about, a hole hidden underground. Inside was a large plastic bin, but it was empty. Seeing the agent's confusion, Robert Jr. recalled a story. Years ago, there'd been a rainstorm. Water seeped into the floor of the shed and soaked the compartment. And Gentile flipped out. Robert Jr. said he'd never seen his father so distraught. So maybe Gentile had hid the paintings in his shed and then ruined them by being careless. Maybe, but wouldn't he have just explained that to the FBI and gotten the charges dropped? I'm not sure. The destruction of such priceless paintings probably weighed on him. To ruin timeless works of art could humiliate him and his family. It's possible he'd rather face prison time than admit his mistake. In the end, Gentile was sentenced to 30 months for selling prescription painkillers. And while he didn't end up dying in prison, his daughter did pass away while he was serving time. 
that cemented his hatred for the FBI. After Gentile's release, he reached out to Stephen Kirkchen, a local reporter who'd extensively covered the Gardner heist. When they talked, he strongly insinuated that he had something to reveal about the Gardner case. But when Kirkchen pressed him once again, Gentile's nerve appeared to falter. He just couldn't admit that he'd played a part in the story of the paintings. Instead, he switched topics and railed at the FBI for ruining his life. He despised them more than ever and was never going to tell them what he knew, if he knew anything at all. With Gentile now dead, this makes it difficult to really know whether the Gardner artwork was destroyed. Well, if Bobby Donati, one of the mobsters from our second theory, did bury the paintings, he's no longer around to tell us where. Truthfully, there's really no one around to confirm whether they may have once been in the shed. It makes me think the paintings, unfortunately, are gone for good. That may be true, but I think we might at least have some closure on what happened. Regardless of who committed the theft, I think it makes sense that some of the paintings ended up with Garenti, who eventually passed them to Gentile. It's clear that he knew more than he let on. More than anything, I think it was Gentile's embarrassment that his own recklessness had destroyed the paintings that kept the case from being solved. I guess that would also explain why none of the other mobsters could ultimately produce the artwork when they needed it. It's a shame, really. All that art, ruined, because some criminals thought it was their get-out-of-jail-free card. For me, that's enough to give this theory an eight. I'd like to hope that one day at least a few of the paintings will be recovered. They might be scattered in different places, perhaps with mob relatives or people who unknowingly pick them up at garage sales. At least, that's what I hope. And I give this theory a seven. To this day, the Gardner Museum memorializes the theft by displaying empty frames where the paintings once stood, a grim reminder of its past. And the museum's former director, Anne Hawley, has publicly appealed to whomever has the paintings to keep them in a dry, climate-controlled environment, definitely not beneath a shed in a plastic barrel. Which means that $5 million reward is just sitting there, if the artwork still exists. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Gardner heist, amongst the many sources we used, we found Master Thieves by Stephen Kirkjian extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kirsten Liu, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. 
fact-checking by Bennett Logan and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 